Animals Today Radio is made possible in part by a generous grant from International Society for Animal Rights, isaronline.org. Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Peter Spiegel. We have a great show lined up for you today, and we are going to begin with the great news regarding captive chimps used for medical research. I now want to welcome Dr. John Pippin. He is Director of Academic Affairs at Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, PCRM, one of our favorite organizations. Hi, Dr. John Pippin. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's uh, good to be back on the program. We feel the same way, and the NIH finally ha- is going to retire all of its research chimpanzees. That's how the headline read. Uh, what does this mean? This means that after um, many years, the National Institutes of Health is, is out of the chimpanzee research business. They no longer will allow their chimpanzees to be used for research, and in fact, they have retired all about 360 of them now, and um, this is going to make it not impossible but very difficult for anyone to do invasive research on chimpanzees in the United States. Now, the NIH, people might be surprised, the NIH owns and, and controls the destiny of these chimps. Well, that's right. They have, as I said, about 360. Um, there are about another... 300 to 350 privately owned chimpanzees in the country. And, of course, the NIH does not um, determine what happens with those chimpanzees. However, uh, along with retiring all their own chimpanzees, they are ending their financial support for research conducted using private chimpanzees. So this affects the whole enterprise. Right. How did this decision get made? We think primarily by Dr. Francis Collins, director of the National Institutes of Health. And this all began when the NIH planned to transfer uh, 200 chimpanzees from the uh, Alamogordo primate facility in New Mexico, uh, where they were retired, back into research at the Southwest National Primate Research Center in San Antonio, Texas. This was in 2010. And this led to uh, quite a bit of opposition from um, organizations opposed to it for both ethical and scientific reasons. And it um, gathered support from uh, New Mexico public officials, um, including uh, then-Governor Richardson and elected federal representatives for the state. So that, that was actually halted and... Some members of the Senate collectively uh, urged the National Institutes of Health to have the Institute of Medicine perform a formal evaluation to determine whether chimpanzees were even necessary for medical and scientific research. That was done. Uh, The Institute of Medicine determined um, that there is no area of scientific research for which the use of chimpanzees is essential. I was uh, privileged to uh, testify at those hearings, and the NIH, Dr. Collins, to greatly to his credit, accepted those findings and then charged a working group of the NIH to come up with a plan to implement um, the report from the Institute of Medicine. And uh, that was completed in uh, 2013. The plan included very high hurdles for any researchers seeking to gain NIH uh, grant support. And uh, as a result of that, there has not been even one new chimpanzee research request uh, granted by the NIH since 2013. Dr. Collins now has also determined that there is no reason to wait any longer before retiring the 50 remaining chimpanzees in a research in a reserve colony that was recommended by the Institute of Medicine report and the Council of Councils. So what has happened is that this whole process has been telescoped by the fact that there has been no 
need for further chimpanzee research and also by the fact that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service reassigned uh, captive chimpanzees to the endangered category so that they receive now the same protections as their wild cousins. So that combination of factors, the very high hurdles that have been set at NIH and the severe restrictions to the use of an endangered species, in this case chimpanzees, has resulted in um, basically an end to chimpanzee research. Seeing the landscape, uh, Dr. Collins decided that now was the time to retire the remaining 50 chimpanzees and to remove NIH from the chimpanzee research business altogether. That's just fabulous. And uh, so where are the chimps going? Well, the the first ones to be retired to sanctuary are going to be the 20 remaining NIH-owned chimpanzees at the Southwest National Primate Research Center, and they are going to go to the National Chimpanzee Facility uh, Chimp Haven in right. Louisiana. And then the other chimpanzees who are retired will, uh, as space allows, also be sent to sanctuaries, and in the meantime, they're being maintained uh, by the National Institutes of uh, Health and are ineligible for research. Given your scientific expertise here, can you speak to the past and potential future usefulness of CHIMPS for research for human disease? Not that I'm advocating it, but just on a scientific basis, haven't we made any discoveries or breakthroughs based upon research on CHIMPS? Yes, we have. And I think what's happened in the area of uh, advancement in in scientific research in the last couple of decades is what really has led uh, to all of this. As almost everyone uh, knows, chimpanzees have been used in a variety of medical and scientific experiments for decades. And uh, what we have learned as a result of that is, with a few exceptions, chimpanzees, though they are genetically uh, our closest relatives, have not been um, reliable uh, in translating findings to uh, human disease, to the human population. And uh, this has caused a search for other approaches, um, such as stem cell methods and organ-on-a-chip, which are now quite prominent and have replaced a lot of uh, animal research. And when you add to this the fact that that also in the last couple of decades, much more information about how much chimpanzees and other non-human primates are like humans uh, behaviorally, uh, emotionally, and in terms of their uh, perception of fear, uh, pain, and suffering. So those two factors, the ethical and probably more so the scientific, have brought us to the point where now NIH feels it's no longer necessary Mm -hmm. to use chimpanzees. So all the uh, quote-unquote promise for HIV uh, vaccines and cures and hepatitis C, that really didn't come to fruition. True for HIV. Chimpanzees were turned out to be a very poor model for HIV, although uh, back in the 80s and 90s, the NIH had actually uh, uh, instituted a breeding program of chimpanzees with the uh, sense that they would be helpful in addressing HIV. Now, the uh, even before uh, the retirement of the chimpanzees, the NIH had prohibited the use of chimpanzees for HIV research specifically uh, because it didn't work, uh, because decades of research had uh, produced nothing toward a vaccine. Now, chimpanzees were used for the development of uh, some vaccines, specifically the hepatitis B vaccine, And at the time of these changes that have just occurred, they were being used in research seeking a hepatitis C vaccine, but uh, that was determined not to to be necessary, that that research could continue without the use of chimpanzees. I should add that uh, chimpanzees in the development of hepatitis B vaccine were really used as bioreactors. They were used to grow the uh, uh, antibodies to the vaccine. Uh, they were not particularly useful in terms of studying the disease that occurs in humans because it's not at all the same disease in chimpanzees. And now that it's possible to uh, to grow the antibodies, produce the antibodies without using chimpanzees, there's no need for their use. Well, we're all looking forward to seeing the videos that I'm sure will be released of these chimps touching grass and uh, living free 
in their sanctuaries for the first time, and it's really indeed a, a, a wonderful uh, time for for uh, all. It of is us. a great time. This, um, I, I'd like to uh, I'd like to just mention one more thing if we have time. When the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, reclassified chimpanzees, captive chimpanzees, as endangered. They also uh, reported that the initial assignment, split listing of chimpanzees, uh, captive chimpanzees into a uh, into the threatened category rather than endangered, was not legal. It should not have ever been done. And so, as we um, look at these uh, happy outcomes, we shouldn't forget that government oversight failed these chimpanzees. Um, ever since that designation was made in 1990, and um, what they have been through in the last quarter century was unnecessary. What a shame, and thank you for uh, clarifying that. Dr. John Pippin, Director of Academic Affairs, PCRM, thank you so much, and congratulations. Uh, Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today. Make sure to visit us on animalstodayradio.com, where you will see all our previous shows and where you can download them free. That's animalstodayradio.com, or you can listen on iTunes. Also, make sure to like us on Facebook and join the discussion. Animals Today gets a lot of its support from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And I hope you'll consider making a donation to help pay for the ongoing broadcast of Animals Today. Each week on Animals Today, we strive to bring you the highest quality, most up-to-date information about all animals, how we treat them, and their place in society, while promoting greater respect and kindness towards them. So thanks for your support. That website, again, is aianimals.org. And thanks for listening. So you and your family have decided to get a dog or cat. We think that's great. And we want to remind you to adopt your next companion animal instead of buying. That's because shelters have so many loving dogs and cats waiting for a home that it just doesn't make sense to buy a pet from a breeder or pet store. And sadly, over half of all animals that enter shelters are killed. That's millions per year. So when you adopt your pet from a shelter, most likely you really are saving a life. When you go to a shelter to adopt your new dog or cat, you will find many wonderful choices for your new family member. And please tell your friends and family to visit the shelter when they are ready to get a new dog or cat. Ask anyone. When you adopt an animal, you'll have a loyal friend for life. And you'll feel pretty good, too. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIAnimals.org and on Facebook. That's AIAnimals.org. Hey folks, it's Dana here. I want to talk to you a little bit about our power grid. Now, it's no secret that the administration has literally declared war on the coal industry. And the result is that the cost of electricity is skyrocketing right past the record rates we already have. Now, ultimately, I believe these policies are going to create real shortages of electricity. It's like Obamacare, but with the power grid. And it gets worse. Experts say that our power grid continues to remain unprotected and vulnerable, which is why I want all of my listeners to be able to produce their own supply of electricity. Listen, I believe that it's time to prepare. You should always prepare and be prepared, especially with any coming problems concerning the power grid. So do what I did. Get a solar generator from Solutions from Science. They run quietly, emit no fumes, and produce an endless supply of electricity from the sun. Go to DanaSolarBackup.com to learn more. That's DanaSolarBackup.com. Use coupon code Dana to get a special half-price offer. DanaSolarBackup.com. Do you owe the IRS money? Do you have years of unfiled returns? Has the IRS garnished your wages or put a lien against your house? The IRS has the power to make you pay back what they claim you owe and will stop at nothing to collect. If you are losing sleep over your IRS tax problem, there is a solution. Call Signature Tax now. Speak with our professionals and feel the weight of your tax burden lifted from your shoulders. Call 800-859-9446 for your free and confidential analysis on ending your tax nightmare. We can help get your life back on track and give you the fresh start you deserve. 
Our A-plus BBB-rated tax resolution team has over 125 years of combined experience to get you the best deal possible while stopping the IRS dead in their tracks. Call Signature Tax now at 800-859-9446. Call 800-859-9446. Again, that's 800-859-9446. 800-859-9446. Welcome back to the program. We recently had the opportunity to visit veterinary neurologist Stephen Hansen in his office because Susie, our aging Ridgeback mix, seemed to be getting weakness in her hind legs. Now, fortunately, Susie's doing okay for a senior dog, but this got me and Peter talking about neurological problems that can occur in our companion animals. So what do you think might be the most common medical problems or diseases a veterinary neurologist sees? I want to welcome to the show veterinary neurologist, Dr. Stephen Hansen. Hi, Dr. Hansen. Hi. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Stephen, can you first tell us what is a veterinary neurologist? Yeah, sure. So a veterinary neurologist is a veterinarian who, after veterinary school, does a uh, specialty training residency. So generally three years of specialty training followed by um, board examinations. And through that process, one becomes board certified, um, a board certified specialist in neurological disease. Um, Most veterinary neurologists are trained not only in medical neurology, but also surgical neurology uh, because the veterinary field does not have a neurosurgery specialty like um, the human medical field. Right. So uh, most board-certified veterinary neurologists treat neurologic conditions such as seizures and balance problems and also perform spinal surgeries, uh, sometimes intracranial surgery. Wow. So what are the most common problems a veterinary neurologist treats? Yeah, I've The things that we see by far the most common conditions are disc disease and seizures. Um, Disc disease is a very common condition that doesn't always require evaluation by a neurologist, but it is a common disorder. How is this diagnosed and what are some of the symptoms? Well, the first thing to look for is weakness or pain because what's happening with disc disease is that one of the little cushions or intervertebral discs between the vertebrae of the spine undergoes degeneration. And when it degenerates, one of a couple of things can happen. Sometimes it just slowly bulges up and it pinches the spinal cord, which can cause weakness and pain. Or in other cases, a disc can very suddenly rupture where it impacts on the spinal cord and causes sudden paralysis either of just the back legs or all four legs. Is it difficult to distinguish between disc disease and, say, arthritis or dysplasia of the hips? There's some overlap in the symptoms because both of those things can cause symptoms such as difficulty rising, difficulty going up and down stairs. But there's certain particular things that we look for in a neurologic examination to see if there is an actual neurologic impairment. Once we're suspicious of that, uh, we'll oftentimes do tests such as x-rays or MRI to actually make the diagnosis. Which dogs and cats get intervertebral disc disease? I mean, are certain breeds more susceptible? Any, uh, any dog can get intervertebral disc disease. Generally, um, that acute rupture with the sudden paralysis occurs in younger dogs, generally smaller dogs, and especially the ones with longer backs. So Dachshunds, for instance, uh, Pekingese, Shih Tzus, other dogs with short legs and long backs are predisposed to that sort of disc degeneration. Uh, The more chronic or gradually bulging disc problems we see more often in larger and older dogs. And how about prior injury or specific activities? Does that cause disc disease? Well, sometimes um, 
certain discs can protrude just from wear and tear. So sometimes with larger dogs that do a lot of running around over years, their disc will kind of experience wear and tear and start to bulge. Um, with the little dogs with a sudden disc rupture, that's a condition that can start to smolder without any symptoms whatsoever. And then the disc becomes like a time bomb. And one day the dog may jump off the couch or maybe running around the house or it may just be walking across the kitchen floor and suddenly that disc can rupture. So it doesn't take any sort of trauma um, or any activity out of the ordinary to set that disc rupture off. Can we prevent this, Dr. Hansen? Generally not. You know, the it's um, dogs have a genetic propensity to develop this disease and uh, like I mentioned things like jumping can kind of put the disc over the edge and actually cause the rupture but that rupture can certainly occur even if a dog never jumps or goes up and down the stairs so uh, basically there's there's not much that can be done to prevent it in the small dogs I like to not encourage them to do things that involve jumping so we have to let a dog be a dog, and they have to run around and play. But I like to have people avoid actually enticing their dog to jump up and greet them or you know, and, jump and, on their back legs, which would put their spine in more of a upright position and put more stress on the discs. Right. What, what's your approach to treating intervertebral disc disease? Well, in a lot of cases, it only takes medication. So... Um, sometimes we'll use anti-inflammatory medications or pain medications, and those things are especially helpful in the short term. So sometimes a disc will have kind of a flare-up, and we need to give medication for a couple of weeks, and then the inflammation subsides, and we can get them off of medication. Um, sometimes when longer-term therapy is needed, we also use acupuncture, which seems to be good in helping with pain control and sometimes allowing us to get by with less of the pharmaceuticals. When the disease is severe enough, though, it requires surgery, and especially a dog who is paralyzed from a disc rupture. That's actually an emergency. So if a dog were to be suddenly paralyzed, it's essential that it gets to a veterinarian right away and then uh, probably referred to a specialist and get the testing and surgery done. The good news about that is most dogs that are paralyzed from a ruptured disc eventually walk. And so with timely treatment, the prognosis is quite good. Mm. Do cats get disc disease? They do, but a lot less commonly. I would say for every couple hundred dogs that we see with a disc rupture, we might see a cat with a disc problem. Thank you very much, veterinary neurologist Dr. Stephen Hansen. I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to talk about seizures. We'll definitely talk about that on an upcoming show. Thanks again. My pleasure. Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today. Make sure to visit us on animalstodayradio.com, where you will see all our previous shows and where you can download them free. That's animalstodayradio.com or you can listen on iTunes. Also, make sure to like us on Facebook and join the discussion. Animals Today gets a lot of its support from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And I hope you'll consider making a donation to help pay for the ongoing broadcast of Animals Today. Each week on Animals Today, we strive to bring you the highest quality, most up-to-date information about all animals, how we treat them, and their place in society, while promoting greater respect and kindness towards them. So thanks for your support. That website, again, is aianimals.org. And thanks for listening. Rita, you look upset. I am, and I'm not sure what to do. My neighbor's dog is tied up outside. He looks very skinny and sick, and I never see food or clean water given to him. You need to report this right away. What do you mean? You should call Animal Services or the police and tell them about the abused and neglected dog. They can help to make sure the dog is properly taken care of. Okay, I can't stand to watch him suffer anymore. What's the number? Even though most of us take good care of our pets, not everyone treats dogs and cats with the care and compassion they need to be safe and healthy. 
If you see that a dog or cat is not being treated properly, report it to Animal Services or the police right away. Pets need food and clean water and protection from extreme weather. You can make the difference, and you don't have to give your name. Help stop pet abuse and neglect. Be their voice. Make the call. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. There is no getting around it. The great outdoors isn't so great for your cat. From speeding cars to toxic lawn chemicals, coyotes to cruel humans, cats are no match to the dangers of today's world. The good news is animal behavior experts say cats don't need to go outside to be happy. Your family will be happier and healthier, too, without the ticks, fleas, diseases, and the dead critters the outdoor cats bring their owners. And you will never have to explain to a crying child who or what hurt her pet or why he hasn't come home. Cats can enjoy a happy and safe life indoors. The key is to provide attention, exercise, and a stimulating environment. Play with your cat. It's fun for both of you. You can hide toys around the house, too. Just make sure there can be no detachable parts that can be swallowed. You can protect your cat from becoming a tragic statistic. Tomorrow may be too late. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Dana Lash here. Our freedom and independence is not free. Veterans and their families pay the price for your freedom and for mine. Veterans' families are many times unprepared to deal with what our warriors bring home. The pain, the nightmares, feelings of detachment, irritability, trouble concentrating, and sleeplessness. These are some of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress. The Purple Heart Foundation would like to offer all of you out there, all of my listeners, the book Tears of a Warrior, a family story of combat by Janet and Anthony Seahorn as a free gift. Tears of a Warrior was written to educate families families and veterans about the symptoms of PTS and to offer strategies for living with the disorder. The book is free to anyone who would like a copy. All you pay is shipping. Go to purpleheartfoundation.org. That's purpleheartfoundation.org or call 800-935-9941. That's 800-935-9941. Order the free book or give a donation in honor of a veteran you know. You can donate a car or cash. All donations go directly to help veterans nationwide. 800-935-9941 or purpleheartfoundation.org. I'm Bob DeRigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. As we all marvel at the amazing pictures that a tiny spacecraft has sent to us from the farthest reaches of our solar system, it's a good time to think about all the ways we've benefited from space exploration, and might still in the future. Modern conveniences like cell phone cameras, scratch-resistant lenses for sunglasses, and water purification systems were all originally developed by NASA. Because of all the brilliant minds working there, it often seems like the only limit on what we can create is our own imagination. Unfortunately, one of the barriers to innovation is entirely man-made and unique to America, legal fear. Currently, a device invented by a former NASA engineer that could save lives by making it impossible to text, talk, or email on a cell phone while driving is being kept off the market, in large part because of fears about lawsuits. Let's be fair, there are actually many products that haven't made it to market because of concerns about the excessive litigation in America, and you would be amazed at what they can do. Learn more. Visit our website at centerforamerica.org. Do you hear that ringing? I've heard that ringing in my ears for over 20 years. My doctor said... The ringing and buzzing in your ears is called tinnitus, and you're just going to have to learn to live with it. The constant ringing in my ears is annoying. I've tried everything, and nothing worked. So I invested my own money, met with doctors, specialists, and certified labs. After a decade of research, we've developed Tinoxyl, a prescription-free, 100% natural and effective way to stop the ringing. And better yet, it helps me sleep. Trying to sleep with ringing in my ears is almost impossible. But with Tinoxyl, I started sleeping better in the first couple weeks. I'm so confident that Tinoxyl will help you too that I'm giving the first 100 callers a free 30-day supply. Don't let the ringing in your ears control your life. Call now and get your free 30-day supply. Just pay shipping. Take back control of your life. Combat the ringing and start sleeping again. Try it for free. Call 800-930-1669. That's 800-930-1669. 800-930-1669. amazing how sensitive dogs sense of smell is there's this figure out there that a dog's sense of smell is a million times more sensitive than humans I I wonder if this is true but I will tell you that on some of our walks with our dogs 
they are definitely smelling very compelling odors like food or or rabbit or other dogs that previously walked by, and even someone cooking dinner inside their home. And these smells can sometimes make them pull on the leash in seemingly random directions. But what do we really know about the science of dogs' sense of smell? I want to now welcome Dr. Nathaniel Hall. He's a researcher at the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University. Hello. Nathan, why did you get interested in how odor is detected by dogs? Just because it was something I couldn't see. I thought in general it was interesting that, you know, the dogs could be sniffing around at so many different things and clearly getting an experience not having. Um, So I was sort of curious was, what they're paying attention to, and that sort of just led me into the field of where these dogs are actually used for as detection dogs, and I quickly became interested in sort of the wide variety of uses of detection dogs and all of their functions. And the field is pretty wide. How are dogs used? Probably the most common ones that you might hear about are things for narcotics detection, drugs, but also explosives detection. There's also um, mine detection, which would be quite similar. Um, But also, more recently, there have been a couple of things coming out regarding cancer detection, possibly uh, different types of medical detection, um, like hypoglycemic states. But also, there's a growing literature with conservation dogs, where dogs are used to find um, endangered animals that might be very difficult for humans to find. So they bring out, uh, the surveyors bring out their dogs with them to help find these uh, difficult-to-find animals. Fascinating. Lots of interesting uses. Hopefully the dogs like what they're doing. Yeah, I think they do. Um, I mean, if you if you think of a dog sort of going on a detection task, it's, it's like a hunt. They really seem to enjoy it, uh, sniffing around and trying to find their target. Nathan, where do you get the dogs from? For my research, we use uh, pet dogs. So pretty much anyone that is nice enough to sort of let us in and train their dogs uh, every day uh, for our studies. That sounds like a fun activity. Now, you do have a couple of recent studies you want to report to us, and uh, so tell us about that first one. One of the ones that I think is quite interesting is we've been looking at how does odor exposure, sort of your experiences with odors, um, influence how quickly you can learn to detect them, so for training purposes, and also how sensitive you are to those odors in terms of um, what levels or concentrations of the odorant you can detect. So what we were looking at is if you've had prior experience um, with the odor and that it's been exposed to you, or you've had experience in the form of what we call Pavlovian conditioning. In other words, that odor comes to predict that good things are going to happen to you in sort of the very near future. How do these types of things influence your detecting performance? Um, And what we found is that you can have lots of exposure to an odor. You can be exposed to it for long periods of time, so it's very familiar. But that doesn't change your overall rate in which you can detect that odorant. Um, but what does change is if you learn that that odorant comes to predict good things, like the appearance of food coming, that does enhance how quickly you can learn about it in a detection task and also how sensitive you are to that odorant so that you can become more sensitive to it um, through relatively simple pairing procedures, which sometimes um, in, the, in the training areas might be considered odor imprinting, um, but really you can boil it down to what we call Pavlovian conditioning, which is a, a large field of animal behavior in your study. Very interesting. So the result is you are trying to figure out ways to make the training more efficient and probably less expensive. Right. So what we're looking at is... Um, or the nice things about Pavlovian conditioning is that it's really easy because it's really just based off of when two stimuli appear. And what I mean by that is all that matters is how sort of close in time and for what periods of time two things appear. In our case, it's just going to be odor and food. So the dog doesn't have to be trained to sit to sort of alert to an odor. Really, all it has to learn is that when odor appears, that food is going to come which means we can readily automate it. And also it doesn't require any particular um, sort of pre-training of the dog to sort of get them to be able to learn it. It's really just about simply presenting these two odors, uh, these two stimuli, the odor and the food, in a paired fashion. So hopefully, uh, you know, this 
could reduce overall training time because by sort of replacing it with these pairings that are quite easy to do. Um, and particularly, it also matters quite a bit about the different types of parameters that you present it um, with Pavlovian conditioning. So, for example, it's important that you don't just sort of put trial after trial after trial together, but rather that you sort of space them out so yeah. that um, you don't just run a bunch of trials and then the dog is done, but rather you space them out. So it sort of really lends to um, a, a nice sort of space training that could be readily automated. Did you determine if, if certain breeds are better at detecting certain odors? So, so yeah, so we actually just worked on a study um, relating to that where really what we were interested in is this idea that there's going to be different sensitivities of different breeds or some breeds are going to be better at nose work than others because a lot of this ideas out there really hadn't come from the scientific literature, but rather they were sort of generated out there um, but weren't sort of verified previously. So what we decided to do is, well, let's just find three breeds of dogs that we knew were going to have some sort of differences between them. So we decided to pick the German Shepherd, which we sort of took as our, our standard, our gold standard dog. And then we wanted to select probably what we thought was going to be the worst performing dog, which was actually the pug. It's a brachycephalic breed, so it's got that pushed-in nose, uh, so we really didn't expect it to do particularly well. And we also wanted to pick another breed that we were kind of interested in, which was the greyhound, because they're traditionally a sight hound. So we wanted to see how well they would do um, on this particular nose task. And what we found um, overall is that actually our pugs acquired the task significantly faster than our German shepherds. And even when we diluted the odorant, the pug still did really well. What do you think? Outperforming. Well, why? We're not terribly sure. We had a test in there for motivation. Uh, so we also did a visual control test where they were also trained on a visual task. And they learned those both at the exact same rate. So it wasn't purely that, uh, that the pugs were just better at learning. Perhaps they were more motivated. Um, but there could be other things. So perhaps, you know, the pug's nose is going to be closer to the ground. So they might have been more sensitive to the odor because they were, maybe they were just paying more attention to uh, the odorants that were on the ground. Uh, or there could be a variety of reasons, you know, using pet dogs, perhaps. Maybe even when the owners were out sort of walking the dogs, the pugs are allowed to sniff longer. So they're more used to exploring their odor environment. Uh, we don't really know. That's definitely going to be an area to, to look further into. Which is exactly what I wanted to ask you as we conclude here, Nathan. Uh, where else do you think this research uh, needs to go, and what are you particularly interested in uh, working on next? So I have a lot of future interests. Um, so one area that hasn't really been covered, at least for a while or for a lot of odorants, is sort of this general idea of, well, how sensitive is the dog's nose? Um, there's a lot of estimates out there. So some of them, some of the initial ones coming from the 1950s, it was in, essentially found that dog's nose is around a million times better than the human's nose. Yeah. Um, but when those, uh, but that was from one dog, and when it was retested uh, several years later, uh, the researchers found nothing close to the same sensitivity. In <laughs> fact, that, that sort of one million estimate was rounded down to about 100 so there's a lot of discrepancy in exactly how sensitive the dog's nose is. So I'd be interested in exploring that and looking for seeing whether there are actual breed differences when we get into more controlled sensitivity measures. Yeah. In addition, I'm also interested in looking at odor mixtures and how dogs perceive different types of mixtures. So we really don't know how they perceive mixtures, although that's what we train them to all the time. So the different types of odorants that we train them to really are not just one sort of pure chemical, but are rather a mixture of many, many, many different chemicals. And what the dog's actually perceiving from that mixture is unclear because the way that we perceive it is probably not going to be the same as the way that the dogs perceive it. Um, and odor mixture perception is actually quite complicated as into whether you might perceive the individual components as sort of, you know, you might smell a mixture, but you can smell a hint of, you know, cinnamon, a hint of hazelnut, but you can smell those different components or whether it sort of blends together into one sort of unique sort of um, synthetic whole smell. Uh, we really don't know. So that's another area that I'd be interested in exploring. 
When Peter and I are walking our mixed breed dogs around the block, our dogs can detect someone cooking a hamburger or steak from a mile away. Yeah, my dog loves Chipotle. We used to have a Chipotle that was nearby that we would walk her around, and she could, uh, she would start, you know, making different diversions and turns, and then we would find that there was someone walking with a Chipotle bag a couple feet in front of us. <laughs> That's funny. Dr. Nathan Hall, thank you very much for coming on the program. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for joining us on Animals Today. Each week, we explore the wide variety of new and important issues concerning the welfare and rights of animals, how people treat them, and where they fit in society. From whale protectors risking their own lives on the open seas, to lawmakers fighting to pass legislation to assist animals, to kids volunteering at their local shelter, Animals Today provides timely and in-depth analysis and interviews with experts and advocates from around the world. To listen, join us every week on this station, listen on iTunes, or go to animalstodayradio.com, where you can access and listen to all the prior shows. And like us on Facebook and share your views. Much of our financial support comes from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIanimals.org. So check them out. This is Dr. Lori, and thanks for listening. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for joining us on Animals Today. Each week, we explore the wide variety of new and important issues concerning the welfare and rights of animals, how people treat them, and where they fit in society. From whale protectors risking their own lives on the open seas to lawmakers fighting to pass legislation to assist animals to kids volunteering at their local shelter, Animals Today provides timely and in-depth analysis and interviews with experts and advocates from around the world. To listen, join us every week on this station, listen on iTunes, or go to animalstodayradio.com, where you can access and listen to all the prior shows. And like us on Facebook and share your views. Much of our financial support comes from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIanimals.org. So check them out. This is Dr. Lori, and thanks for listening. Hey folks, it's Dana here. I want to talk to you a little bit about our power grid. Now, it's no secret that the administration has literally declared war on the coal industry. And the result is that the cost of electricity is skyrocketing right past the record rates we already have. Now, ultimately, I believe these policies are going to create real shortages of electricity. It's like Obamacare, but with the power grid. And it gets worse. Experts say that our power grid continues to remain unprotected and vulnerable, which is why I want all of my listeners to to be able to produce their own supply of electricity. Listen, I believe that it's time to prepare. You should always prepare and be prepared, especially with any coming problems concerning the power grid. So do what I did. Get a solar generator from Solutions from Science. They run quietly, emit no fumes, and produce an endless supply of electricity from the sun. Go to DanaSolarBackup.com to learn more. That's DanaSolarBackup.com. Use coupon code Dana to get a special half-price offer. DanaSolarBackup.com. I'm Bob DiRigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. For millions of baseball fans who attend big league games each year, the possibility of catching a foul ball is one of the attractions of the game. According to one study, as many as 53,000 foul balls are caught by happy fans each year. However, if lawyers who just filed a class action lawsuit against Major League Baseball have their way, a lot fewer fans will be leaving games with a souvenir ball. Under the lawsuit, all ballparks, including the historic Wrigley Field in Chicago and Fenway Park in Boston, would be required to extend protective netting from behind home plate all the way to the foul poles in left and right field. The lawyers argue that warnings about foul balls printed on tickets, posted around the ballparks, and mentioned over the PA system are not enough. Let's be fair, serious injuries do happen, and baseballs have been flying into the stands for decades, even before Babe Ruth was playing. But do we really want a policy like this that affects millions of baseball fans to be decided by one lawsuit? Learn more. Visit our website at centerforamerica.org. Not available in California, Louisiana, and Virginia.
Listeners, do you have startup capital and want to invest in a booming business with incredible profit and growth potential? The opportunity is now because Fresh Healthy Vending, the number one healthy vending franchise in North America, is looking for a few business-savvy, healthy-minded people right here in the local area to become Fresh Healthy Vending franchise owners. We're growing so fast that we've had hundreds of new franchise owners in the last few years alone. Now you can join them. This area has a huge demand for Fresh Healthy organic snacks on the go, and that's exactly what you'll be selling with your Fresh Healthy Vending machine. We've already identified prime high-traffic locations that are perfect for healthy vending machines. Now we just need the right people to join our franchise network and help Fresh Healthy Vending continue to boom. If this sounds like you, go to readyforfresh.com today and enter code 1414. We'll send you a free owner information kit. As an added bonus to new franchise owners, we'll also pay half the franchise fees. Hurry, this offer is limited. Just go to readyforfresh.com and enter code 1414. That's readyforfresh.com, code 1414. website animalstodayradio.com where you can see all the previous shows there many years now and a little blog post about each one and you can listen right there or you can download it uh, also you want to go to itunes and subscribe to the show on itunes and every week you'll get an automatic upload on your device so you can take us everywhere you go <laughs> that's awesome that is awesome and advancing the interests of animals uh, Advancing the Interests of Animals is the California-based nonprofit animal welfare organization that is the main sponsor of the show. So check them out at AIanimals.org. And they're having a conference soon, aren't they? They sure are. Advancing the Interests of Animals is hosting a seminar called Helping Animals Without Going Crazy, Strategies for Effective, Joyful Advocacy. This is going to be Friday, December 11th at 8 a.m. at the Renaissance Hotel in Palm Springs, California. Now, if you're involved with animal rescue or adoption, or if you work in any job having to do with animals like working or volunteering in a shelter or in a veterinary office or anyone who cares about animals is welcome to attend. So it's open to anyone. It is. And there's, Peter, there's something called compassion fatigue, and it's quite common. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's referred to as secondary traumatic stress syndrome, so which is when the caregiver experiences these periods of stress or exhaustion or frustration, anger, and even depression, which is typical of what people might call burnout. In other words, working in an environment which could be quite heart-wrenching and emotionally intense, yeah. as one often does when they work with our animal friends, this can be hurtful to the caregiver. This seminar will offer tips or strategies to jumpstart this healing process. But even if you don't work in the animal field, many of us have experienced the intense feelings of sadness, loneliness, and even guilt surrounding the loss of our own dog or cat. This seminar will also offer ways to cope with the loss of our own companion animal. You know, people are embarrassed sometimes to admit how much it hurts to have lost a dog or cat, aren't they? I think they're embarrassed because they think they think people aren't going to understand. That's right. I think that's pretty common. Yeah. And, and it doesn't allow them to sort of go through the normal grieving process, trying to keep it all internalized. Yeah. It hurts a lot, man. It does hurt. And can hurt for years, yeah. can it? Yeah. And Lori, how can people register and attend? You go to the website, Advancing the Interests of Animals, which is aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org to learn more about the seminar and to reserve your seat. Now, seating is limited, so you're going to want to sign up now. That's Friday, December 11th, and it starts at 8 a.m. at the Renaissance Hotel in Palm Springs, California. And it's not like an all-day thing that drags on and on and you want to finish the day. It's going to be done by 1, right? By 1 o'clock, 8 so to 1 p.m. So there'll be a lot of information packed into a couple of hours, question and answer session, three nationally renowned uh, expert speakers. So it's really going to be a lot of information. It's going to be fun. I just read about a wonderful program aimed at helping our military dogs, and I want you to know about this. Welcome to the show, Rita Moore, Director of Sales and Marketing at La Valencia Hotel in La Jolla, California. Welcome to the program, Rita. So glad to be here, Dr. Lori. Rita, you guys are doing something very special for our military dogs. Tell us about it, please. So the hotel in uh, La Valencia, we're very pet friendly. We we all have dogs, many rescue dogs, and as Veterans Day approached, we really started to 
see uh, what we could do, certainly to support all of our servicemen serving to protect us, but also we learned of the fate of military dogs, and we started to uncover that there's some things that we could also do as pet lovers to support the U.S. military working dogs, some of the things that they need, whether it's to get through the harsh winters of Afghanistan or just to be able to have a playtime like a normal dog. And we're starting to ask all of our visitors and guests uh, to help us put together all of these canine care packages. So what sort of items are you looking for? We are working very closely because we want to do this right with U.S. War Dog Association, and they have been fabulous about supplying all of the information. So uh, a lot of the places that these dogs are serving, of course, the weather is extraordinarily harsh, anything from the winters, so they need to have um, booties to protect them from the harsh winter and the snow and ice. They need warming mats, uh, even goggles for the dogs with the blowing sand and the grit or the snow. Other things are, you know, toothpaste, blankets, any kind of dog treat, uh, although they do want them to be made in the USA. And then very heavy-duty uh, dog toys, such as the Kong. Even a military working dog wants to, you know, gosh, just have a normal playtime, even if they are serving in a war-torn country. They, and they deserve it. They do. Where would my listeners send these goods to? So uh, La Valencia is lo- located in La Jolla, California. Right now we're doing it as a physical drive. We're partnering with uh, Metropolis, which is a wonderful store also in La Jolla, So they are donating this wonderful bin that people could just either go to Metropolis or bring any pet item unwrapped, and we'll be posting the list on our website at uh, lavalencia.com and drop it off at the hotel. We're also working with U.S. War Dog Association. They have a donation link that people, if they just want to donate $5, $10, whatever they wanted to, and that, too, goes to help purchase canine packages. Rita, how do the items that you're going to be receiving get to our military dogs? We're working closely with the War Dog Association because they're going to facilitate the shipment of all the packages that we gather to actually get to their final destinations. And they don't know yet where it would go. It could go to Afghanistan. It could go to Iraq. It could go to Africa, they look and see what the different teams are and who might be in the most need. Rita Moore, tell us the website again, please. La Valencia, that's L-A-V, like in Victor, A-L-E-N-C-I-A dot com. Thank you very much, and thanks for caring about our military working dogs. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet the animals. The holidays are here, and we want to remind you of a few things that you can do to keep your dogs and cats safe and happy this season. First, make sure the Christmas tree is secure and cannot fall over, and that tree ornaments, which can be eaten, are out of reach. And make sure the tree's water, which can get overgrown with bacteria, is covered so no one will drink it. Holiday plants like holly, mistletoe, and poinsettias are toxic to pets, And be especially careful with lilies, which can cause kidney failure in cats if ingested. Electrical wires should be covered or out of reach. And use extra care with candles, or avoid using them at all. Cats love to play with and eat tinsel, which can lead to intestinal problems and even surgery. So we suggest avoiding tinsel altogether. Don't let your pets eat chocolate, alcohol, table scraps, or anything sweetened with xylitol. And of course, don't give them or let them eat any bones, which can splinter and lodge in the throat or block the intestines. And remember, the holidays can be very stressful for your companion animals, so make sure your dogs and cats have a nice quiet place they can retreat to, away from your guests, so they can rest and sleep in peace. So happy holidays from everyone at Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's www.aianimals.org. Animals Today Radio is made possible in part by a generous grant from International Society for Animal Rights, isaronline.org.